Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow! Did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas. dot com slash acast and use code acast for twenty percent off your first purchase. Before I start today's show, I thought I'd just bring you all up to speed on the goings on here at Queens of England HQ. Since uploading the first two episodes, the Queens of England podcast has now found its way onto the iTunes Store, as well as Stitcher and Player FM. This is awesome, and I'm so excited to see my little show in amongst some of the giants. I'm sure it's in loads of other places too, and if you found my show from any of these places, then welcome. It's great to have you here. I also completely forgot in the last two shows to mention my website. It's at www.queensofenglandpodcast.com. That's again, www.queensofenglandpodcast.com. On there you'll find all sorts of things, including the show notes that accompany each episode, as well as a bibliography of books that I've used while doing the research, and a bunch of other cool things. You should totally check it out. The show also has a Facebook page at facebook.com slash queensofenglandpodcast, and a Twitter page which you can follow. The handle is at queenspodcast. Now, back to the show. Hello, and welcome to the Queens of England podcast. Episode 3, Matilda of Flanders, wife of the bastard, Duchess of Normandy. Today, we're going to talk about Matilda of Flanders, England's first post-conquest queen. But before, we ought to look at a few of her predecessors in the role. England, of course, had had queens before 1066. Though some people seem to think that all English history started one minute after Harold got shot in the eye at Hastings, England, in fact, had been a unified country for many years prior. The first woman that we have on record of being anointed as an English queen was a 12-year-old French princess called Judith, who married Ethelwulf, king of Wessex, in 856. Back then, England was a divided up into a number of small kingdoms, and Ethelwulf ruled over the most powerful of them. But marrying the daughter of the most powerful ruler of Europe in Charles the Bald was a bit of a dynastic coup. Given the difference in level of prestige between the two, Charles insisted on Ethelwulf breaking with English tradition and formally crowning his new wife as queen rather than simply being satisfied through purely marrying her. In the magnificent ceremony at verbiers chiois in northern France, Judith was crowned as queen by her husband after the Bishop of Reims had consecrated her and placed a diadem on her head. Sadly, however, he did not live long to enjoy life with his new bride, as he died only two years later. Bringing new meanings to the phrase, keeping it in the family, his son Ethelbald, who succeeded him as king, also inherited his wife, marrying her soon after. Even at the time, this was considered a bit off and perhaps Divine Will did not shine brightly upon him, as he too died only two years after marrying Judith. 
Hardly an auspicious start, though this story does have an interesting side note. After the death of her second husband, Judith returned to France and was placed by her father in a monastery at Saint-Lys in a kind of protective custody. But instead of acting the part of the dutiful daughter and widow, she instead ran off and eloped with Baldwin, a minor count. Furious, Charles the Bald forbade anyone from offering them shelter and even had them excommunicated by his bishops. But the couple pled their case to the Pope in Rome and eventually Charles relented. Baldwin became Count of Flanders and Judith the first Countess, and thus is a direct ancestor of Matilda, being her great-great-great-great-grandmother. As you will see later, Matilda seems to have been cut of the same cloth as Judith when it came to marriage controversy. After Judith, not all wives of kings were consecrated as queens, though of course some may have been, but the fact was lost for history. The first woman that was definitely consecrated as Queen of all England was Elthrith, who married King Edgar in either 964 or 965, but the most notable Queen of Anglo-Saxon England for our story is Queen Emma, who was the daughter of the Duke of Normandy. Like Judith, she was a foreign bride of two kings of England, first marrying Ethelred the Unready and then his deposer Canute in the early 11th century. Her son, Edward the Confessor, was King of England from 1042 to 1066, and he died childless, but not before promising the throne to one of his distant cousins, whose claim to the throne came directly through his great-aunt Emma. So, to Matilda. Matilda was born, well, we're not entirely sure, and there are many competing theories. I won't bore you with the details, so suffice it to say that it's basically sometime in the early 1030s. Now the most important thing to note about Matilda at this point is she was high-born. Pretty much every contemporary chronicler likes to emphasise this, and it wasn't just them making nice. Her father was the future Count of Flanders, considered the most noble non-royal house of Europe, tracing its line all the way back to the Emperor Charlemagne. Her mother was the daughter of the then King of France, and, as already stated, she could also trace her paternal line back to Alfred the Great through her four times great-grandmother. Add in that she could count as uncles the new King of France and the powerful Duke of Burgundy, and you get one well-connected woman. Flanders itself was also a factor in increasing her exaltedness. Once, Flanders was thought of as being a lawless backwater, prone to violent unrest, but in recent years it had become increasingly wealthy, thanks mainly to the cloth trade, and this led to great public building works, including great sums spent on palaces and castles, largely designed to show the county off as a major new player in European politics. If this weren't all enough, there is evidence to suggest that she was quite the beauty. We don't have any contemporary drawings of her, but chroniclers were very complimentary, calling her beautiful, elegant, pious, and virtuous. Now, many contemporary sources equated physical beauty with spiritual piety, and so many of the descriptions of Matilda's beauty may have had more to do with her religious devotion than to her appearance, but they appear so often that it does seem she may have been considered quite the looker. But sadly, we'll never know for sure. In the show notes, I've included an image of Matilda from a 19th century history of English queens, but this seems to be more based on Queen Victoria than any particular insight. In fact, the only thing we know about her appearance for sure is that she was not endowed with great height. When they dug up her grave at Saint Trinité, her skeleton measured only 4 foot 4 inches, which was very short even by the context of the time. So, beautiful, very well born, well connected, pious. This is all good stuff and this all made her a prize candidate in the international marriage market, and if she played her cards right, she could have gotten herself a very good match. As it was, she instead decided to play a very dangerous game indeed. Her first dabble in the affairs of the heart was with an English nobleman called Britrick, 
who visited the Flemish court in Matilda's late teens. A wealthy and influential man, he was said to have been second only to the king in terms of land ownership and wealth. To add to all this, he was also apparently rather roguishly handsome. Tall, with a shock of blonde hair, which I'm sure attracted the attention of many of the courtly ladies, but none more so than Matilda. She was smitten with this older man, indeed so much so that she made what can only be described as a very bold move. Without informing anyone, she sent a messenger to England to offer him her hand in marriage. Now, this was most certainly not the done thing. Daughters, particularly high-born ones, did not choose their own matches, and certainly not in so rash a manner. This is what happens in Disney and Shakespeare, not real life. This put her entire reputation at risk and threatened to get her blacklisted from court life. What made it worse was that he refused her. She had risked everything, damaged her good name, and all she had to show for it was refusal of marriage from a man her inferior in rank. We're not entirely sure why Britrick refused her, but it's perfectly possible that he too was as shocked as we are by this move and thought that she'd be far more trouble than she was worth. Matilda, though, would get the last laugh. According to Doomsday Book, she received a great deal of Britrick's land after the conquest, and, according to some sources, she used her powers as regent during one of William's expeditions to the continent to throw the Saxon nobleman in jail, where he was to die two years later. After this escapade, her family kept a very close eye on Matilda, but eventually, of course, she did tie the knot. So what of the man whom she did marry? Who was he, and what was his lineage like? The Duchy of Normandy was just over a century old by the time that Matilda married its duke. In the early 10th century, the French king granted lands around the city of Rouen in northern France to Rollo, a Viking leader who was one of the litany of Scandinavian raiders who plagued the leaders of northern Europe in the period. They gradually extended their territory over the next few decades, and eventually the Duchy of Normandy ruled over a fairly sizable chunk of northern France. Although the Dukes of Normandy nominally owed fealty to the French kings to the south, in practice the duchy acted essentially as an independent principality, with customs and rituals as Scandinavian as they were French. As you can see from the map that I put in the show notes, France at the time was not so much a century-run kingdom with a king being top dog, as much as a fragmented group of semi-independent counties and duchies with Paris at its centre. The king was nominally in charge, but the only lands he actually owned himself were in the Ile de France, which is basically just Paris. If you think this system sounds messy and ripe for civil conflict, then you're absolutely right, and wars were incessant and violent. William, the future conqueror, was the seventh ruler of the duchy. Unlike his immediate predecessors and most of the leaders of Europe at the time, he was not born of a nobleman. Indeed, he was not even born of a legitimate marriage. The circumstances of this are not entirely known, but the story goes that his father, Robert, his predecessor as Duke, on a visit to Falaise, met a woman called Herleva, the daughter of a local tenor, though her father may well have been anything from the royal chamberlain to a peasant farmer, we just don't know. According to one source, he spotted Herleva from his window while she was dancing, and fell instantly in love, or at least lust. Their passions bore a son, one who was said to have been destined for greatness. It was said that while pregnant, Helleva had a dream that her, quote, inward parts were stretched out to cover both England and Normandy. Now, this sort of predestination story is very common in the Middle Ages, and is something that was almost certainly made up after the conquest. But if you think I was leaving out something that disturbing, you have another thing coming. Now, Robert could not marry this woman due to her low birth, but she clearly had very strong feelings towards him, and he never married anyone in his life and recognised William as his legitimate son and heir, 
showing that he clearly reciprocated these. It was clear, however, that the nobleman of Europe was not so open-minded, labelling him William the Bastard. Throughout his life, William appears to have been rather sensitive to his lowly birth, and it was a wise move not to bring it up in his presence if you were attached to your head being connected to your neck. He inherited the duchy unexpectedly at the age of seven when his father died in the Holy Land, and once he reached his majority, he spent 12 years securing his position, largely through violent military means, and earned a reputation as a skilled and confident military commander. He also had a reputation for cruelty. The Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, which had many bones to pick with the man, called him, quote, very stern man and very violent, so that no one dared anything against his will. Eadmer, another writer, called him, quote, stiff and terrifying. Despite all this, he appears to have been a very pious man and extremely loyal to his troops, but his reputation for cruelty certainly preceded him, particularly to those who would think to cross him. Once he had secured the duchy, his thoughts turned to marriage. With Normandy as a relatively new duchy, and William being born illegitimate, William was looking for a bride of high birth with impeccable credentials, and his attention soon was brought to Matilda. Marriage to her meant an alliance with Flanders, and could easily mean an alliance with France, something that could secure both his southern and eastern borders. Her links to the royal houses of Europe only sweetened the deal. Moreover, her father was also keen on the match. Normandy was also an up-and-coming power, not to mention belligerent, and so securing his western border was as important to him as William's desire to secure his eastern. There were, however, dissenters to the match, one of whom may well have been Matilda herself. Now, this is all contested, but some sources, not the most reliable ones it has to be said, claim that when Matilda was told that she was to be betrothed to William, she flatly refused. Nuh-uh. No way would she lower herself to marry a bastard, even if he was a duke. On hearing this, William is supposed to have flown into a fearsome rage and ridden straight to Flanders. He found Matilda emerging from a church after prayers and greeted her by beating her near to death. After completing his task, he got back on his horse and rode straight back to Normandy. Furious, Matilda's father, the Count of Flanders, immediately declared war on William. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. But was stopped from doing so by none other than his daughter, 
who, to everyone's utter shock, is said to have said that she would marry now no man other than William, since he, quote, must be a man of great courage and high daring to come and beat me at my father's palace. Now, while this is a fine yarn, it is unlikely at best. The sources for it were written 200 years after the event, and, well, it just doesn't make much sense, does it? You don't marry a man who beats you half to death. An assault on your dignity like that is not so easily brushed off, and William would surely not have been as rash as to risk a war over a matter so trivial. It also fits in a little too well with the narratives of William being a violent brute ashamed of his birth, and of Matilda being the pious and loyal daughter willing to marry her attacker to prevent a war. Sorry, sometimes the lurid tales are just not true. There was, though, one impediment to their nuptials, of which we are in no doubt, and this was no less serious. The papacy in the mid-11th century was yet to gain the power that it would gain later in the Middle Ages, yet it was still necessary for important noble marriages to be rubber-stamped by the Pope. For the matter of William and Matilda's marriage, the current pontiff, Leo IX, took the unusual step of venturing outside of Rome to deliver his decision at Reims in northern France. Everyone thought that he would approve the match like popes always did, but not this time. For William and Matilda, Leo put his foot down, and to everyone's shock, he said, no. This was a power play, pure and simple. As we will see in later episodes, the papacy in this period began to interfere more and more in the affairs of Western Christendom, and this was Leo putting down a marker. In this period, known as the Imperial Papacy, fights between kings, dukes, emperors and popes were about to become commonplace. So, why was there an objection? The most common explanation given is consanguinity, i.e. the two were too closely related. According to canon law, a couple could not be legally married unless they were separated by more than seven degrees of kinship, i.e. you could not be within seven generations of a common ancestor. This distinction was interpreted so broadly that it became almost impossible for the noble families of Europe, particularly those at the top of the food chain, to find any bride within those parameters. How are William and Matilda supposed to be related? Well, again, details are sketchy, but historians have pinpointed Matilda's grandfather, Baldwin IV. His first wife, Agiva, was Matilda's grandmother, but his second wife was a daughter of Richard II of Normandy, who was William's grandfather. Hardly any cause for any great biological concern, but enough of an excuse for the Pope to act. It's likely, though, that far from a concern about incest, he was far more influenced by the Holy Roman Emperor, who was worried about the dangers of a triple alliance between Flanders, Normandy and France that could be brought about by this marriage. Leo was a German and heavily influenced by the German Emperor, and thus this could have had a very strong bearing on his decision-making. Whatever the reason, a papal ban on their marriage was a serious blow. Both William and Matilda took their religious faith very seriously, even by the context of the time, and so rejecting a proclamation by the Pope was not something they'd do lightly. Defying the Pope would also give William's enemies at home the perfect excuse to rise up. He tried to talk the Pope around by sending an embassy of Norman bishops to reason with him, but to no avail. Leo was immovable. But, if Leo thought that he was to bring the couple to heel, then he was in for a shock. If there is one trait that William and Matilda shared in abundance, it was a tremendous stubbornness and a habit of sticking their fingers up at the man. Ignoring the papal ban, the couple wed in 1050 at the town of Ur, which is on the Norman-Flemish border. This was no secret elopement either. The wedding robes were described as being of, quote, incomparable richness, and it was attended by each of their surviving parents and all the great men and women of the duchy and county. 
The ceremony would be instantly recognisable to any 20th century time traveller who may have popped by on their TARDIS. The bride was given away by her father, and the couple exchanged rings and vows. It was a ceremony done by the book, so as to give the Pope as little excuse as possible to reject. So, what did Pope Leo do next? Well, he remained obstinately opposed to the match for the rest of his papacy, with some sources saying that he excommunicated not only the couple, but all of Normandy by extension. So, did this cause unrest at home? Well, William had pretty well squashed a lot of opposition to his rule before he married Matilda, but there were some uprisings in the coming years, but given that this was Normandy, this probably would have happened anyway. The most notable opponent in the duchy was none other than William's uncle, Morga, Archbishop of Rouen, the most important churchman in Normandy. Like the Pope, Morga opposed the match on grounds of consanguinity, but soon after expressing his opposition, he was sacked from his see. The official reason for his removal was that he was, quote, devoting himself more often than was right to hunting and cockfighting and spending the treasures of the church on over-lavish hospitality. But William of Malmesbury, a well-respected English 12th century chronicler, states that, quote, some say that there was a secret reason for his deposition. Matilda, whom William had taken as wife, was a near relation, and in his zeal for the Christian faith, Morgred found it intolerable that two blood relations should share the marriage bed and had aimed the weapon of excommunication against his nephew and that nephew's consort. What makes this account fascinating, though, is what comes next. Quote, The young man was furious. His wife added her protests, and so it was said that they had been looking for opportunities to drive from his see the man who had denounced their sin. So, here we have, in a reliable source, evidence of Matilda's active involvement in politics and the affairs of the duchy may not sound like much, but written accounts of a woman's active political engagement like this in a contemporary source are very rare, even in this era where there are more sources than is usual in the Middle Ages. Papal ejection or not, Matilda was not one to hide away. Indeed, the first thing that the new Duchess did was tour Normandy with her husband in what was effectively a giant public relations campaign. It seems to have been a huge success, and everywhere they went they were greeted warmly and enthusiastically. On their entrance to the Duchess' capital of Rouen, the couple, accompanied by the Count and Countess of Flanders, were greeted by enormous cheering crowds, eager to see their new duchess. According to William of Poitiers, the whole city, quote, gave itself over to rejoicing at the entry of this spouse. Normandy had not had a duchess for three decades, as William's two predecessors had been content to remain unmarried, so this was a celebration long in the making. The hoped-for rapprochement with France, though, did not come about as expected. Despite Matilda's familial links with the French royal family, this was not enough to bring about a peace, and King Henry supported numerous Norman rebellions in the 1050s, splitting the loyalties of the nobility between their king and their duke. There was, however, no question of where Matilda's loyalties now lay. She may have been part French, but now she was married to a Norman duke, and thus she too was now a Norman. Eventually, in 1059, nearly a decade after the Hill ban, there was a coup in Rome, where Leo's successor, Benedict X, was deposed by Nicholas II. William sent troops to help secure the position of the usurper, with the instructions that clearly said, lift this ban and these burly men with swords will help you out. This strategy worked a treat, and Nicholas, grateful for the help, retrospectively sanctioned their marriage. As an act of penance, the couple founded hospitals across the duchy, and founded two magnificent abbeys, Saint-Trinité and Saint-Étienne. Saint-Trinité was Matilda's baby, and she treated it very well throughout her life, 
lavishing it with gifts and also holy relics, vital in the competitive medieval pilgrimage industry. Eventually, she was to be buried there and was later joined by her husband. This was crucial to her reputation as a good and pious queen, something that the sources continually point to when praising her devotion to God, a far cry from the woman who had defied the Pope to marry a bastard. So, what was next for Matilda? Well, I'll tell you. Babies. If you remember from the last show, I said that the production of male heirs was seen as the most important duty of a queen. Securing the dynasty was of paramount importance. It is of no surprise, then, that William and Matilda got to work on this straight away, and their brood grew at a rapid rate. Just how many children the couple had remains an open question, especially as many medieval chroniclers don't bother to mention the bells of their daughters, as they were generally seen as unimportant. From what we can gather, their first child was a son, Robert, later to be known as Robert Curtos, and he was soon followed by two more sons, Richard and William, the latter becoming known to history as William Rufus. Producing three sons quickly after marriage secured her position completely. A noble background and a productive mother of sons. What more could a medieval ruler want? In all, William and Matilda were to have around nine children, four of whom were boys. Of their upbringing, we know very little. We know that Matilda's mother and mother-in-law spent much time with her and the children in their early years, and William of Malmesbury remarked that both she and William took great care over their children's education. Of course, for William, his focus was on his sons. From the moment they could walk, they would also be able to ride, hunt and fight, and would have begun serious military training from the moment they hit their teens. There were, in general, two options for noble sons, army or church, and William seems to have had little interest in devoting any of his sons to the cloth. He also gave them an education in politics and governance, but such things were not for his daughters, who would have received more of a mix of music, weaving and prayer-based curriculum. For Matilda herself, the aspect of her children's education that she would have had most control over was religious instruction, but in this she appears to have had limited success with Robert and William, though Richard was considered the most virtuous of the three. Her daughters, though, seem to have received the most attention from her, quite an unusual move for the time. Matilda herself had been given a first-class comprehensive education, far more than was usual for the daughter of a countess, and it seems that she passed this blessing on to her daughters, who were granted access to the same expensive tutors as her sons were. The three sons that she had pre-conquest, Robert, Richard and William, could not have had more different characters. Robert was fond of the pleasurable things in life, Richard was very pious, and William was more of a typical errant schoolboy bully, uninterested and scornful of theology and education. This split between her sons would have dire consequences later for the stability of the kingdom. Of them, it seems that her favourite son was her firstborn, which again was to create problems in the future, but all of that will be dealt with in the next episode. Between her marriage and the invasion of England, Matilda did not just spend all her time raising children and having the relations necessary to have more. In their impressive palaces and castles across the duchy, William and Matilda held regular courts, which only grew in scope and magnificence as their power grew. Matilda's role at court would have been to add the feminine touch, before her marriage, the Norman court was of stark contrast to the cosmopolitan and cultured one in Flanders. The Norman court was renowned throughout Europe for its bawdy entertainment, befitting the war-hungry male nobles that dominated it, but it was completely unsuited to the refined culture that was expected of a balanced modern court. Matilda brought a touch of Flemish class to the proceedings. She was an active patron of literature and poetry, and many histories were also commissioned by her, including one that survives to us today, the Gesta Guielmi 
a biography of William I, written by William of Poitiers. In these years in Normandy, the relationship between Duke and Duchess seems to have blossomed into true affection. They seem to make the perfect team, complementing each other's strengths and growing well to fit the roles assigned to them. Together, they had secured the position of both the duchy and the dynasty, through a combination of victory in war and success in the birthing room. If things had stayed this way, though, they would probably have been unknown to all but the very nichiest of historians. But something was brewing across the channel, something that would change the course not only of Matilda's life, but of the entire course of English history. Next time, Matilda is crowned Queen of England, as William is victorious at the Battle of Hastings, and she and William's partnership grew ever stronger. But the breakdown of her husband's relationship with their sons put Matilda squarely in the middle of a family feud that would last for decades to come. It's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.